I think the life Anne and I have lived is wonderful examples of the possibilities. Because it's not that we're great or we're talented or so forth. I think what God wants us to be is faithful. If we'll be faithful, then he has exciting things for everybody to do. It's a question of whether you're willing to step out in faith. From Walter Bradley, quoted in for a greater purpose, the life and legacy of Walter Bradley. Today, we're honored to once again welcome Walter Bradley to Hill Country Institute Live. Walter has a long and distinguished career as a professor, author, researcher, and consultant, yet so many of us think of him as a mentor, guide, and friend in our journey following Jesus Christ. Walter taught at the Colorado School of Mines, Texas A&M, and Baylor Universities. He received millions of dollars in research grants. He and his wife, Ann, planted the seeds of ministry and personal faith with faculty and students on those campuses, as well as many more. Thank you for listening to Hill Country Institute Live. Stay tuned to hear the story of a man and his wife who have been committed to following God's call and who have seen amazing fruit from their willingness to yield to God's leading and to their own steady, arduous work. We invite you to visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org to hear podcasts of our past radio programs on topics including art, racial relations, science, and more. The website also offers audio and video from our past conferences and seminars on many faith and culture topics. And our radio programs are also available as podcasts at Hill Country Institute Live on your podcast app. Be sure and add live to find the podcast. Our ministry and this program are funded by donations, and you can donate to support this program at hillcountryinstitute.org or by calling 512-680-7993. For donations over $100, we have a copy of, for a greater purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley. And please contact us if you'd like to sponsor the program. Walter Bradley is virtually impossible to introduce without using up most of the time we'd like to spend talking to him. He has a PhD in material science from the University of Texas. He's a scholar, a professor, a researcher, a campus ministry leader, an expert witness, an author, a humanitarian. He's an advocate for appropriate technology for developing countries to utilize their resources effectively. He's been a speaker on campuses around the world on faith-related issues. He's won awards from professional societies and Christian organizations. He's a mentor to Christian faculty and leaders. He's a husband, father, and grandfather. He's a man with a purpose and a clear sense of calling. Walter Bradley's been a longtime friend of the Hill Country Institute and is a fellow of the Institute. He partnered with us to bring Christian leaders together with different views on faith and science in our vibrant Dance of Faith and Science initiative. His statesmanship made it comfortable for people to come together as fellow believers who want to study science, theology, and philosophy. Just to mention some of the activities and recognition Walter and Ann have received over the years, he was assistant and associate professor of Meteorological Engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. He was Professor of Mechanical Engineering and Department Head at Texas A&M. He was a Distinguished Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Baylor, and where he also established graduate engineering programs. He's received over $7 million of research grants to support his students and to continue their innovative research. He's been instrumental in the founding of CREW, uh, that's formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, Ministers to University Faculty, and they've honored him with a Lifetime Achievement Award. 
the Walter Bradley Center for Natural and Artificial Intelligence, named for Walter and led by Bob Marks. Another guest on our program explores intelligence, including AI and emerging technology from many angles. Walter was awarded the Trotter Prize at Texas A&M for pioneering contributions to the understanding of the role of information, complexity, and inference in illuminating the mechanisms and wonder of nature. He was president of the American Scientific Affiliation, which is the largest professional society of Christian technical, scientific, theological, and philosophical professionals in the world. He was outstanding professor of the year of the Society of Plastic Engineers. He received the Charles Crawford Award for contributions to the Texas A&M University. Let's say outstanding contributions to the engineering college. He uh, was awarded with the best engineering paper by the American Nuclear Society uh, for the, with their annual award. He's co-author of The Mystery of Life's Origin, The Continuing Controversy with Roger Olson and Charles Thaxton. In the introduction to the book, there are testimonies, and that book is for a greater purpose, The Life and Legacy of Walter Bradley. And uh, if, you're, if you can see this, I'm, I'm holding it up. It's a, it's, a, it's a great read about a man who's been committed to Christ. J.P. Moreland and many others have uh, things to say, Pastor John Burke, Hugh Ross, Bob Sloan, Robert Sloan, the president now of Texas Christian University in uh, Houston and former president of, of Waco, Baker, Baylor, excuse me. J.P. Moreland's four summary points about Walter stand out. His zeal and passion for God. He's an honest, straight shooting seeker of truth, a man of integrity. He's steady and reliable, and he loves the life of the mind. William Lane Craig wrote, he is one of the most extraordinary men I have ever known. I am in awe of him. Other comments, he's a humanitarian. He's willing to give his time and resources to serve those in need, both domestically and foreignly. He's an ambassador for Christ. He's unwavering in his commitment to Christ. He has committed his life to showing God's truth and love to the world. So today we're going to have what I would say an opportunity to hear some of Walter's stories, to draw on his wisdom and learn about what he has uh, gleaned from his passage through life and what he might offer us today. So, Walter, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you here. My pleasure. Thank you, Larry, for inviting me. Thank you. Well, Walter, I've, I've pulled a few stories from your life, uh, some out of the book, some from things we've talked about. But maybe if we go back and think about you growing up, you, you were in a family of modest means, and you began to work at an early age. And I think you've, if I remember right, maybe you've had a job since you were 11. So what are some of the lessons you learned from that time in your life? Um, there are many benefits to growing up poor. And one of them is that at an early age, the value of work. Uh, we, I think I grew up at a time when almost everybody was somewhat poor. I'm not sure we were much more poor than everybody else. But uh, uh, I got my first job when I was 11 uh, as a paper boy. And all I had to do in this job was to get up every morning at five o'clock, uh, take my papers. They'd come in a, in a big box. Or they would dump off at my yard and I would roll the papers and then put them on my bicycle and ride around the neighborhood for 30 minutes or so, throwing maybe a hundred picture, uh, not pictures, papers every morning. Um, and the only thing I didn't like about the job was there were no days off unless I could get somebody to substitute. And it would be hard to get somebody who could remember where all the hundred papers went. And so 
I ended up working for a long time uh, without a day off, but it paid really well. So I also learned the value of taking the opportunities, even if they're not quite convenient, uh, but pay well, then just go ahead and take them and suck it up. So, Yes, I understand. Well, I went uh, on in, in other, I, uh, I graduated from that into some better uh, jobs by the time I was in uh, eighth grade and ninth grade. Uh, I got job working jobs working at used car places. Uh, well, one I shouldn't not places just one, and I spend my time washing cars and waxing them and cleaning out the insides and so forth for used cars that people had traded in, I guess, and uh, they were going to put the trade in on the market, and I was the one who was supposed to kind of prep it and so forth. That was really a a nice job. The hours were better because they're like daytime hours, not <laughs> in the morning. And uh, uh, they weren't really quite as uh, uh, strenuous. Uh, eventually, when I got to uh, summer after my ninth grade, I was old enough to be able to get a job working on construction. Uh, and that taught me a whole new set of things that were uh uh, also, at different times, useful to me on down the line. Uh, and I learned how hard it is to do all day work in South Texas in the summertime. <laughs> <laughs> the temperatures were predictably, uh, the, the temperatures were predictably almost 100 every day. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, and you, you learned you learn self discipline and uh, the value of a work ethic yeah. during that time, didn't you? Yeah. And, and it was, I learned a lot and people, I was one of the youngest one working there. Most of the people were adults and maybe a few older high school kids. So they would pray, play pranks on me. Like the first day they told me that uh, uh, we, they needed a sky hook and they didn't have one for what we were doing. Could I go over to where the electrical engineers were from another company and see if they had any extra sky hooks. And so they uh, looked around and, uh, and, and acted serious and they said they didn't have any and they told me to, to another place to go and the site of when the construction was taking place and so I spent about an hour going around and it turns out there's no such thing as a sky hook okay <laughs> this is what they do to initiate people <laughs> on the job who are trying hard to do even if something doesn't sound sound stupid but they do it because they think well it's my first day on the job and that's you know so they all got a good laugh out of it, and I got to uh, have a nice, uh, humbling start into uh, my uh, next level uh, of my career. And uh, uh, after my freshman year in college, and I might add this this uh, construction job, the job was really difficult because it was hot and it's hard hard work, but it also paid well, and I was willing to take the hardest job I could find if it paid more than other options. And so that was kind of good discipline. Um, I was the next summer after my freshman year, uh, I was back home from the University of Texas and trying to put together enough money to do my uh, sophomore year. I actually paid 100% of my uh, expenses of going through college. And uh, if I'd had a choice, I wouldn't have done that, but I didn't have a choice, so I did it. And then I looked back and thought, you know, God used that in my life so many ways to, to teach me things that I would not have learned 
sitting at home watching television and air conditioning. Yes. Uh, this was unloading grain elevators or boxcars at grain elevators. Now, this is a really, really bad job of all the jobs I ever had. But what you do is when the uh, train comes up with all these cars that are full of uh, uh, stuff from the panhandle with all kinds of products in it uh, and a lot of dust and dirt, and uh, they needed to unload the boxcars. And so they would simply uh, use axes to chop open the door. And then uh, some of the stuff would fall out, but then we had to shovel all the rest of it to get it out the door because not all of it's going to fall out of the uh, cart. And uh, it would probably be huge amounts of dust and dirt, and you had to wear about respirators and all kinds of protective clothing and so forth. And uh, since I was one of the newer people on the job, uh, they gave me the midnight crew that went from 12 midnight to 8 in the morning. Uh, that wasn't really, at first I thought this was not a good idea. But on second thought, I decided this is really a gift because it's so hot. <laughs> in the summertime, the shot, the one I would have wanted, that one, the 8 to 5, would have been absolutely horrible. Uh, it wasn't too bad between midnight and 8, except I had to learn to sleep in the, in the daytime. And uh, uh, then do that. Uh, but it worked out pretty well socially because I could, for example, go out with some friends or have a date with somebody. And that was always between maybe uh, six or seven until 10 o'clock at night. And then I would go to work and then I would come home and sleep in the morning. And so it didn't adversely affect my social life at all uh, <laughs> to learn how to sleep. <laughs> I look back at all these and I think even at the time, although if I'd had a choice, I would have wished I didn't have to do that. But I knew I was learning and developing in ways that uh, have served me well uh, since then. I know how to work hard and, and I don't have troubles with that because I've already done some of the worst kind of hard work <laughs> that you can have. And uh, the stuff that I've had since then has basically been less and less challenging uh, physically, not intellectual. <laughs> yes. Anyhow. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a, it was an inducement to get a job that would keep you out of the heat, if nothing else. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. Uh, I, I, I learned in, you know, they didn't have the graveyard shift in the construction work that I did in building ports previously. But the boxcar thing was all 24 hours. And so I, I picked the one that was least hot. Yes. And, uh, yeah. That's a good plan. Well, one of the one of the things that uh, we talked about and that you noted in the book is that you you went to school with multiple ethnicities, people uh, from different backgrounds, and that that was something that uh, shaped the way that you see people. How would would you talk about that? Because that's a that's a continuing conversation and issue yeah. among among people. And how do we all get along? And what did mm -hmm. you learn from that experience? You know, looking back, uh, I've thought about this uh, often. Uh, how did we manage to miss, and I say we because it wasn't just me, it was our community. How did we manage to miss all of the racial controversies that were happening? This would have been from uh, 19, uh, it would have been from 
when I was in seventh grade, and that would have been about 1947. And not, is that right? In the early 50s, early 50s at least. And that was when they were first having the uh, forced integration uh, all over the country. And mo most places had a lot of controversy and pushback on that where the uh, schools had all been segregated with uh, in corpus, Hispanics in one school sets and uh, African-Americans and then Anglos. Um, and when I started seventh grade, it was the first year that the United States and the Supreme Court had ruled she couldn't have this separation of, um, on the basis of race anymore. So when I showed up at seventh grade, there was a uh, I might add in elementary school, it was all white kids. So mm -hmm. in seventh grade, uh, uh, the uh, junior high school that I went to, our first experience was we all shot, showed up and there were us, Hispanic kids, African-American kids and white kids. And there wasn't any major pushback on that. I'm sure there was some prejudice and probably things were sometimes said between the kids that were in the junior high school. Um, but I think by and large, we pretty quickly got used to having people from the three different races uh, uh, all in classes together, on sports teams together, and so forth. And it, it just somehow uh, worked out to be uh, a positive experience and one that has been very valuable uh, as in the later years that followed when there was so much controversy about racism and um, prejudice and discrimination and stuff. And I was thankful looking back that I'd already worked out in my own line through my experiences, uh, the understanding that people's skin is really not that important and that it's, uh, uh, I'd cause all of us to be people with a certain kind of behavior and character and so forth. And it doesn't make any difference what our skin color is. Unfortunately, in our country, it took a lot of time for people to learn not to look at people and have uh, uh, prejudice of what this person's like. And if they're not the right color, then I'm not going to be a friend with them and so forth. I'm sure there was some of that that went on where I went to school. I'm not pretending that we were all angels. But I felt like that by the time I was in high school and certain by the time I got to college, I was very comfortable around Hispanic uh, uh, people and very comfortable around African-American people. And I think that was a blessing to me uh, in the years as I got out of college and went into work and stuff that uh, I didn't somehow uh, collect the prejudice that I think was common at the time. And uh, I was able to treat everybody as somebody that God's created who is uh, uh, special in different ways and that uh, uh, that we should all treat everybody with the respect that God calls us to. So I found it to be a, a very uh, good experience that those lessons I was, I learned without being in the middle of a big controversy or lots of, you know, political uh, bickering back and forth and so forth. Although there was a lot going on at that time. It just happened in my junior high and high school. It was a real novelty and an unusual, I guess, that we got together. 
my senior year in high school, probably one of the biggest steps forward came when we had our football team. Uh, the top 33 players uh, were about a third uh, white kids, about a third Hispanic, and about a third African-American. So it was absolutely fully integrated. And those were the best kids in, uh, the football, for the football team. They weren't there because somebody was doing racial gender, gendering. It just happened that the very best athletes were distributed between those three races. And so everybody pretty quickly got over that. We're going to have to have integration. No, we want to have the very best sports teams that we can. Yeah. High school that year won the state championship uh, oh. for the largest high schools in Texas. So they were the number one. Uh, football team in the country and we were also proud of that we didn't really care that we were you know three different races that was sort of became not important what became important was unifying and winning the uh, state championship and we would have weekly uh, times when we had uh, uh, pep rallies and stuff before the games and we would have the gym be completely filled up with uh, black kids brown kids white kids and we were all in there because we were all kind of unified in our common desire. And so my remembrances of my experiences with uh, Hispanics and African-Americans uh, in high school uh, was really one that was quite positive. It wasn't like it was a struggle or we just kind of had to get over our prejudice. No, we were all on the same team, whether we were cheering for the football team or the basketball team uh, or uh, Playing. Uh, yeah. So, sports sports can be very uniting. I, I know I experienced the same thing. Uh -huh. So, uh, when you were when you were fourteen, a real uh, tragedy entered your life with the death of your father. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So, how did how did that experience uh, impact you, and what what lessons did you learn from that? This was probably the single greatest challenge in my whole life. Um, I had had a good friend from high school who had invited me to go with his family to uh, Garner State Park in Texas, which was one of my favorite places to go in the summertime. And so I went with them. After we'd been there a couple of days, though, something peculiar happened. A highway patrolman came and said that I had to go home right away. He did not explain why. They took me to the bus station and put me on a bus and I rode the bus home and I got on the bus, went home. A pastor met me at the bus station and I was, uh oh, something bad's going on here. And I was right. My father had, without any precursors that anybody recognized, had committed suicide. And uh, that, it was, it was, Shocking to me, not just because it was my father, uh, that was part of it. It was shocking to me because my father was a very devout Christian. He was probably the single biggest influence in my life uh, up until that point. And uh, I could not imagine how he could possibly do something like that. And uh, that was a question that I had that I had to just live with for 20, 
20 years, I guess. Yeah, 20 years. Um, when I found out how something like that could happen, it didn't take the pain away, but at least it gave me a better understanding. What I learned 20 years later, I'm 14 at this time. So, so I have my mother, my sister, uh, and me. And I know my mother doesn't need for me to be a typical teenager. So I absolutely and immediately, I think, began to, to think and to work uh, like an adult, to be the substitute that my father wasn't. Fast forward 20 years, something happens that uh, gives me some insight of how this could have happened. Uh, my sister was uh, diagnosed with, um, gosh, what's the name of what she had? She had, I'm trying to think of what the name of it, sorry. Uh, it's something that uh, causes you to have lots of problems with depression and, and so forth. Uh, bipolar disorder, maybe? Bipolar disorder, thank you. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. I haven't said that word in 10 years. Yes. But if you don't know what that is, it's something that's very, it's not common, but it's, it's, it is very, very difficult when you're bipolar. Uh, you, your mind is simply begins to not function properly. And one of the common, most common outcomes for people who are bipolar uh, is that they end their lives uh, by suicide. It really is just terrible. And subsequent to my father having committed suicide, I knew two or three kids that uh, and a couple more adults in the preceding years uh, after my father had committed suicide. I had I knew several other uh, high school and college age kids and uh, some adults that also committed suicide and were and were diagnosed as bipolar. Uh, it was just it didn't make the pain go away, but at least it helped me understand how this could happen. Because the people that were having bipolar uh, problems, uh, when they committed suicide, it's like their mind had just shifted into a different gear. And it wasn't rational at all. And, and uh, if not somehow treated, and at the time my father committed suicide, there weren't any treatments. They didn't even know what bipolar manic depressant passion was. It was in that 20 years following that uh, when my sister was diagnosed that they had come to understand it and were be beginning to be able to treat it. And fortunately for her, early treatments were not very effective, but they were effective enough for her to uh, hang in there. And then uh, gradually they got better. And today she's 70 years old and she managed to live through that. But uh, it was a terrible loss of my father, but it was an even bigger challenge to my Christian faith because he's my Christian model. And how could he do something like that? And I had to simply say, God, I don't know how this happened. and I don't know why it happened. And I'll just find out someday, maybe, when I get to heaven. And... Fortunately, I had that opportunity 
before I got to heaven. Uh, but I think it was an, it was a good lesson that sometimes things happen in the world and we don't understand why. And I still don't understand why things like that happen, but I understand uh, how, it, how it can happen, but not why. And uh, so I think, but what that did for me, I think I was never a sort of a typical teenager screw off. Uh, I was absolutely trying to be my replacement uh, in terms of help for my mom that my father was and, and would have been. And so I didn't have the typical teenage, you know, transitions, which can often be kind of ugly you know, and nasty, <laughs> or at least stupid. Uh, we all know how teenagers act, and I just skipped that. Well, looking back, uh, God can use even the most difficult things that happen in our lives. Um, and it doesn't mean that that's the whole reason that that happened, but I'm simply saying God can cause all things to work together. Good. Those who love him are crawled according to his purposes. And I claim that verse really, really hard because I thought that was so much pain that God can use it in some really big ways, and he did. So I look back and say this was something that was in itself bad, terrible, but God was able to uh, use it in some positive ways other than just the pain. Yes. Well, that's a difficult time. Well, let's move to, to something that uh, that was really a reflection of who you are uh, as a person. You enjoyed arithmetic, I think, okay, but then you moved into algebra and other expressions of mathematics. So how did that love of mathematics and science lead you in your career? Well, I think um, when I was going through school, I loved school. I loved most of the topics, not all of them. Uh, but I, when I first got into math, not arithmetic, okay, some people confuse with arithmetic and mathematics. <laughs> arithmetic is like addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, right? And they made us do that for about six years after we already had understood, learned all that. But there were a few people that didn't learn it, and we all had to keep doing it. But when I got into algebra, and you could have word problems, and you could solve things that you couldn't do just by thinking about it. And I fell in love uh, with science and with math. As I got into chemistry and especially into physics, I discovered, oh, my gosh, this uh, uh, math uh, algebra that I was learning and eventually the calculus that came along later, that those were crucial tools. And uh, you can do all kinds of things in science and predict things and discover things and make things. And I just felt like this is amazing. I was so excited because a lot of my education up until then uh, had not really uh, gave me opportunity to do any kind of reasoning. It was all memorizing and regurgitating, which I didn't particularly like. But, uh, uh, and I think by the time I finished high school, I knew what I wanted to do when I got out of high school was to uh, go and study uh, math and uh, physics, in particular chemistry as well, and be able to have those tools to be able to uh, get involved in all kinds of jobs. 
it would be really, really interesting. I had worked as a construction guy. I'd worked as a grain billet, <laughs> grain uh, car uh, emptiers, all that. So I knew what manual labor was like, and I knew uh, I didn't want to do anything like I did growing up. But yes. I wanted to do math and science, and so that's how I really fell in love with that. I think God gave me a love for it, and it was it's allowed me both to have really interesting jobs. Uh, it's allowed me to uh, have a very, very good uh, income uh, because those kinds of jobs pay better than construction or green car or empty green cars. But uh, it also gave me a growing appreciation for the God who made our universe because we look at it and we, in a way, we can kind of see the grandeur of it in a subjective way. But uh, when you study uh, math and science together, you can see things in nature that are so absolutely remarkable that it really uh, is like the fingerprint of God telling us uh, uh, that he's there and this great, amazing universe. Uh, is not the way it is by accident. It's too many things that could not have happened by accident. By accident. And that uh, it gave me eyes to see God's glory and power and, and uh, creativity in a way that I would not have seen it before. Mm-hmm. I think that we, that people who study these subjects, in a sense, get a uh, extra a pair of glasses to look around and to see uh, all of these things that are uh, really amazing and and I think absolute confirmation for uh, God and his existence. I think in 1950, a lot of atheistic uh, scientists were claiming that in, uh, soon we will be able to explain everything about how the universe began and how life began and, and so forth. And that uh, uh, it would confirm atheism, that we don't need a God to explain how the universe got the way it is. Uh, we can do that with science. Yeah. Well, to their dismay, the last 50 years have been, or I guess 70 now, uh, but particularly, particularly between 1950 and 2000, uh, the discoveries went essentially 100% in the wrong direction for atheists. And that the more we learned, the more problematic it became to try to uh, explain how life just happened, how the universe just happened, and so forth, uh, which is what the atheists were claiming. The universe was kind of self birth and developed and so forth, and uh, pretty crazy uh, at the time, we didn't know enough. You could say, well, maybe that's really what happened. It just was on its own. But unfortunately for them, the more we learned, the more that simply became untenable. And that uh, even the atheists have had to acknowledge that there are so many things about the universe that are so remarkable. And if not so, would not have allowed for the development and existence of life. These have become so many and so remarkable. And I think today it's uh, uh, amazing 
uh, that anybody would today make those kind of claims. I've had wonderful opportunities to give talks on his scientific evidence for the existence of God at uh, Harvard, at 700 people out at him. Uh, Yale, we had a couple of hundred at, uh, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. All the Ivy League schools, I went up there uh, and gave talks on this topic and then would have at least an hour, oh, I know, University of California at Berkeley, we had 1,800 people come out. And we'll always have at the end of these presentations at least an hour for Q&A from the audience. And it was a delight to be able for people to raise what they thought were questions that were problematic for problematic for me with my uh, interpretation of nature uh, and science. And to be able to show them that the only answers that make any sense and seem reasonable to this uh, universe that we see is that it didn't happen by accident, that it was carefully designed and crafted and executed. And it's really fun to go to schools like Berkeley with 1,800 people there, faculty and students, and be able to share uh, the positive with the PowerPoint presentations that I have made uh, that presents all this evidence and says, how could this possibly have just happened? And in the Q&A, uh, uh, it's not difficult to answer the kinds of, well, maybe it could have been this or it might have been that, but no, no, no. Now, here's why that doesn't work. Here's why this doesn't work. Uh, and I think what God has done is he's left for us a, an amazing uh, fingerprint. And that amazing fingerprint um, uh, makes it, I think, very difficult to be an intellectually honest atheist if they've done their homework. Because the evidence right now is so compelling. And for me, it's a real blessing. Yes. Well, Elaine Eklund, who's a sociologist at, uh, at Rice University, has done studies of academics, and she found that, that more science professors or STEM, um, science, technology, engineering, math professors, believed in a creator, maybe, maybe not necessarily a Christian view of the creator, but at least that there's a creator, then in the liberal arts faculty. So that would really speak to what you're saying, that there's the, uh, evidence within the makeup of nature and what we observe as we get deeper into it. So that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's an amazingly good word for a Christian, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I would uh, second her uh, experience uh, at Rice. Uh, when I was at Texas A&M, uh, we started a, a Christian faculty network uh, just so we could get together and uh, have Christian fellowship and stuff. Uh, but also because we wanted to make a joint uh, statement to our university community by running full page ads in the newspaper and then have the names of all of the professors that uh, wanted to sign on to that. And it was interesting when you looked through that it would be the names of the professor, the department they were in, and then uh, email address or a cell phone number. Um, and then you look through and you say, wow, this is interesting. Almost all of the people that are on this list are, surprise, surprise, engineering faculty uh, uh, and people in sciences. And there was a, uh, I would say, a proportionately much, much smaller a number of people who are from liberal arts. 
uh, ironic it was the people in Iraq. It's ironic that the people who are in liberal arts and don't have uh, any significant understanding of uh, science and engineering were the ones that were comfortable with the being a agnostic and assuming there wasn't a God and that the people who worked in the field that is studying creation uh, to uh, affirm, I think, because of those uh, that discipline that they're in, uh, they find it very easy to uh, believe that there is somebody who has made these things the way they are. They didn't just happen by accident. Yes. Walter, someone is young and they're considering a, a, de a degree and maybe a career in STEM. Uh, what would what would you have to say to them? Well, I would suggest that if they really like, they'll know if they've taken math and science in high school, maybe freshman year in college. I think the most important thing is to do this because they really find it interesting and challenging. I think it also, most of the jobs pay better, but that's not a good reason because if you're going to do this for 40 years, it would be something that you really like too. Uh, but I think if you like math and science, it's, I think the problem, and I've seen this with some of my grandkids, uh, some people that have the capacity to do uh, the courses they needed to in math and science in college, but uh, it's hard work and it's much harder work than most other majors. And sometimes they just decide it's too much or too hard. Not that they can't do it, but that they don't want to work that hard and they drop out. And I think it's unfortunate. I think uh, uh, certainly for my kids and grandkids, I've encouraged them to at least, if they have gifts in those areas, uh, the learning it and getting the tools put together is a, uh, work but once you've done that then it's a real delight i think to work in that area and so yes don't choose what you're going to major in in high school, or high school or college don't choose what you're going to major in by what's easy uh, because unfortunately what easy usually doesn't produce very uh interesting jobs and yeah and then two two follow-up questions are uh, careers in stem good and appropriate for Christians? And then mm -hmm. second, uh, what would you say to young women that are considering uh, careers in STEM? I think that there's been a, a large change in the 40 plus years that I uh, was a college professor in the demographics of people that are in the, the STEM area. Um, my first uh, teaching job was uh, with the Colorado School of Mines up in uh, Denver or Golden, Colorado, which is a very famous uh, engineering school. And I think we had 1,600 students and there were about 10 women. So I think it was probably not quite that bad uh, at some other schools, but the percent of women at the time, this would have been, uh, gosh, 1970, yeah, probably about 1970. People, women just weren't majoring in those things, and I'm not sure how much of it was prejudice or, or what, whatever. 
I don't really know. It's probably a combination of things. I think it was partly cultural. Men do this, women do that. Uh, and that really shouldn't have been the way people chose. But I think that over time, that's gradually changed. And uh, in the eight years I was Colorado School of Mines, I think our women's population grew from eight to maybe 25%. And this is eight students, not 8%, uh, having eight gals out of 1,600. Um, and eventually we got 15 or 20%. And once you got that many, then the girls didn't feel awkward being in a class that was all guys. Yeah. Uh, During the years I was at Texas A&M and and, then Baylor, I think it became much more common for gals to choose uh, engineering as a major if they liked math and science. And I think the stigma uh, of being a girl in engineering or a guy in education, maybe teaching in elementary school or something. I think some of those uh, prejudices uh, or stereotypes have, have been removed. And today, they, there's a lot of ladies who are in this area and, uh, and do quite well. So I think it's been a benefit to, to break those kinds of things that discourage people from having the complete spectrum of possibilities to consider and not just ones that are, are stereotypical cultural. Yes. Well, you, you, uh, you know, I'm kind of doing a chronology of your life and, and we work other things in too, but you, you went to the university of Texas when you were 17 and a few years later, you left with a wife, a daughter, a son and a PhD in material science. So there, there was a lot that happened during those years. Um, what stood out about your, your, your student experience? Oh, gosh. But I, I went in a, a young kid, okay? Uh, so I think it, it, well, I was really uh, grew up a lot during those seven years. If I look at what, who I was when I went in and who I was when I came out, uh, that was probably the, by far the most rapid uh, period of change in my life from being a young kid and who thought he might want to be in math and science and not really knowing that to being somebody that has a PhD and can teach that and uh, wanting to someday maybe have a wife and children and already have now I have a wife and I have two children. (laughs) So a lot of the, a lot of the things that I had thought I would like to try, uh, I had the opportunity to do that. And some of the things I tried, I discovered, no, I don't want to do that, but I want to do this. And so God was gracious during those years because for everybody, I think you make decisions then. Who are you going to marry? For children? What kind of job? Uh, maybe uh, how serious are you going to take your faith? And so forth. And a lot of things get put into place during that time. Some for the best and and some uh, unfortunate. So, yes. Well, one one of the things you did later, not during your student days, was was to get acquainted with the work of Stephen Covey on using time effectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and your your kids, you formed a, a company called Success for Students about time management, and uh, you've you've worked diligently to help students use their time wisely. How would you how would you coach somebody today who's a student or or a professor or anyone about time management and the and the importance of using your time effectively? 
I have I had a misfortune during my years at uh, Texas A and M when I was asked by my dean to be department head of our department, and I, I say that I was unfortunate because it's not fun to try to lead a group of seventy people with PhDs, all of whom think they're smart and don't like to be led, don't like to be told they're not doing good at a good enough job. <laughs> so, uh, it wasn't the job that I wanted. I love the job of teaching and doing research, but the job of trying to, to help other people to do better uh, and or if not, uh, for them to move on. So I felt like one of the most crucial things that I could do would be to help. Uh, this is for faculty. Okay, eventually I did it for students to be able to um, learn how to be, use their time better. Time management is real important. Most people don't spend any time formally studying that and how to do it properly. And I had not done it formally either. But the first week I was department head, I was at an airport on a trip uh, for the department. And there was a book there by a guy named Stephen Covey called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think it was providential that I got, uh, I happened to see that book at that time, first of all, for me, because I felt like the job that I was going to have now was going to require managing a lot more details and stuff. And it was going to be a lot more complicated and required a lot better planning and everything because I was doing it not just for me, but doing this to help our department. And uh, I read that book and I was just blown away by it. It was so good. And I found so many good ideas in it that I signed up to go to the program that they have around the country, uh, a three-day seminar program that is uh, well, for anybody that wants to take it, most of the people that take it are people that are uh, having some kind of uh, management responsibilities or people who are just wanting to be more effective in whatever else they're doing. And it was extremely helpful. Uh, and then I decided after, and so then I had a program. Uh, I worked it out with Franklin Covey. We were the first university faculty people to have a seminar of the previous ones had been for businesses. And they were actually quite curious to uh, have me inquire. They saw us as a new market, I guess. Um, and so they were uh, very gracious in giving us some uh, much less expensive prices and, and some suggestions on how to execute it and, uh, and how we can do it with, doing it on campus as opposed to everybody traveling to one of their uh, ones at a location in a big city someplace. So that was really uh, a very, very important thing that uh, was very essential for me to be able to survive and to keep balance in my own life and yet do a good job. It's always a trick to try to see, make that happen. But uh, so that was, that was really something very, very important. But when I saw the improvement it made for professors, I have the same problem with uh, my students that I taught. Some of the ones that are very smart, but they're so bad in managing their time, they flunk out of school or have a very low uh, 
uh, grade point average. And they're not, there's, they're not kids that are not smart. They're kids that are just flat disorganized and don't have their priorities right and so forth. Um, so we ended up uh, making up a program that was based on the principles of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits, but was tailored to the need for st uh, students. And so I had, um, the first year that, that I had that prepared, I wanted the students to take it, but I knew that a lot of them, if I just sent out a mail out, uh, they probably wouldn't come because they would say, I don't need that. They do need it, but people who need it most usually see at least that they need it. So it was kind of, um, I thought being the farmer head, I can do some things. So the students got their grades mailed out to their parents about the 20th uh, of December. And then I prepared a letter uh, that was going to arrive the next day, the 21st of December, that was talking about a seminar program that was for one day that I wanted to invite students to come and take. Uh, it was only going to cost them $10 in the programs when Covey has them. For business people, it's $1,500. <laughs> so this was a really, I thought, good deal. And, uh, uh, and I ended up having about, our department had 1,200 students. I think I had about 500 come. And uh, it was amazing. I did evaluations at the end of the thing to see what they thought about it. And so many of them on the, in their little uh, thing that I gave said, I really didn't want to come to this. And I only came because my parents made me. <laughs> I can see that there are a lot of things I have not been doing right in terms of how I was approaching my work as a college student. And I'm going to change. And at the end of that semester, I got so many uh, nice letters from students who say, I was on scholastic probation. My grade point average was 1.7. This semester, I made a 3.6. Uh, or whatever. And so a lot of the students who really felt like they were going to drop out of engineering because they weren't smart enough and so forth. And they were shocked, but pleased to find out the problem is not that engineering is too hard. The problem is you're too inefficient in how you go about your work. And so then I got, we got, um, I got a lot of requests from other departments around so we eventually had a seminar program that was for anybody at A&M that wanted to come, not just ones in my department. And then I got invitations from some other universities. And so this became, wasn't my main thing that I did, but it was maybe one of the most important things that I did because it was one of those things, once the program was done and we had videos and so forth, then we could make it available to a much, much larger audience, so to speak. And, uh, be able to help a lot more kids because so many kids are smart, but most of them don't have any clue about how to manage their time. And they think they can't do engineering or some hard major um, because they're not smart enough. And that's not the problem. It's a midnight diagnosis diagnosis. So, so it was one of those things. It was really nice once it was done. Then uh, uh, I got some people who, take care of taking, sending out the things and we charged them a little bit of money, but not very much enough to cover the expenses yes. of 
of printing it and, and mailing it. But it was one of those things where uh, that providential uh, interaction or, uh, at the airport where uh, I just happened to see this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and read that. It's amazing how uh, God multiplied that uh, yes. to, uh, for a lot of people. And a lot of faculty, then I shall far to mention some of the professors after we had the seminar in our department, I did it, I would do a 10-week follow-up where we did a lunch show once a week for 10 weeks. And I had 40 people, faculty sign up uh, and come uh, every semester. And I'd have more people than that on a waiting list. And I would say, we'll do it again next semester. And we'll put you at the top of the list. And uh, we fill that up every fall and every spring uh, with professors wanting to know more about uh, what Stephen Covey's uh, principles were and how they could apply to faculty. And we did that every fall and every spring for 10 years. And we've never publicized it or we never advertised it, except maybe just to a general uh, thing. It was mostly word of mouth. And what it did uh, was to convince me that there were a lot of people like me that needed to take these principles and be able to uh, uh, get my life uh, operating in a much way, uh, fulfilling and effective way. Walter, we've we've got so much to discuss. I I, want to invite you to come back and and talk more. Uh, But if you were to if you were to summarize a few key things that, that you have learned as, as someone who's worked in a career, you know, and, and also developed in their faith and served God in, in both areas, mm-hmm. uh, what C.S. Lewis described as a bird with two wings, our, our profession and our faith. Mm-hmm. What would, how would you wrap that up? What would you want people to take away from your experience in your life? Um, Larry, I would say that probably uh, one of the most critical things that that we do in life is to decide what is my purpose and what what is my destination. Until I get those carefully thought out, I may just be meandering alone. Um, I do believe that God gives each of us uh, talents and uh, and things that for uh, maybe a certain area of opportunity for a career. And if we give the most important thing we can do beyond, I for me, coming to a Christian, becoming a Christian uh, when I was 14 years old and, uh, and uh, getting my priorities straight and then learning, not just learning, but practicing using uh, the gift of time, each day I consider it a gift uh, in a way that uh, honors God and, and gives me a good journey. So I think probably when we look at how our lives turn out, there are a few key things, if done, can give us a much, much higher uh, likelihood of get to a de- getting to a destination I'd like to be to. And uh, I think that uh, uh, the most valuable gift that God gives us is time. 
And I think learning to see that as, as a gift from God and as a stewardship, to be able to have them. I think God's, we see the video reruns of our lives when we, have, when we go to heaven. <laughs> I think we're going to look at those and say, oh, gosh, what was I doing then? Or why did I do this? Or, gosh, I missed that opportunity. And we're going to be going, you know, I think all of us now, hopefully, I'll, have, I'll do less of that than I would have had I not early in my life uh, recognized the, the gift of, of time that God has given us and the uh, uh, responsibilities that come with that. And God wants us to have a fulfilling life, and, uh, and he's provided uh, for each of us uh, gifts and talents and so forth. But uh, uh, we've got to, we can't be just passive and uh, uh, God wants us to be proactive. So, yes. Yep. You, you talked about something about a boat in the book. What was it you're supposed to do with the boat? Something about getting out of the boat. Oh yeah. Like Peter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. uh, In the book, one of my favorite uh, stories from the gospels does have to do with, uh, Peter, uh, if you read in the right place in the Gospels, I think it's in maybe at least two of them, the uh, disciples are are going across a big lake and a big storm blows up and uh, the disciples are all freaking out because it looks like the boat's going to for sure sink and they're going to for sure down, drown. And... uh, uh, God beckons them to come out and Jesus, I should say, who's walking on the water, uh, is beckoning them to come uh, out of the boat and come to him. And all the other disciples say, I can't do that. I don't, I don't walk on water. I don't want to drown, you know. And Peter, to his credit, says, if Jesus says, come walk on the water, I'm going to go walk on the water. And he starts walking. And amazingly enough, He's walking on the water, and then before he gets to Jesus, he says, oh, my gosh, I'm walking on water, but you can't walk on water, and he starts. <laughs> and Jesus Jesus uh, uh, saves him, I guess. But uh, I think that's a, a very relevant uh, story with a very relevant message. I think a lot of times uh, – God calls us to do things, and sometimes things that seem to be beyond what our capacity is, or gifts and talents, and we're afraid to step out by faith if we don't think we can do it, instead of saying, if God has called me, then he will enable me. I like that story, Peter. Yes. I keep walking until I get Jesus, right? (laughs) He wouldn't call me to do it, except that he's equipped me to do it. Well, I like the I like the way you you tie that into risk taking in in your mm-hmm. career and and uh, and living a life of faith in a in a place in a, academia where it's mm-hmm. not necessarily welcome. So yeah. that's a there's a lot of uh, ways that each of us can step out of the boat. I think that's yeah. just a great analogy and a great example for living yeah. a, a full life. So, I think that you, that's the applications you're suggested. I think are. are are some of the best because I do think whether it's our career or uh, career or how our, our children, raising children and so forth, 
they all have challenges and some of them are scary and we don't, as you said, step out of the boat. Uh, when I first went to my first teaching job, uh, there was nobody in my department that was a Christian. And then I later found out there was only one other person on the whole faculty. This was a Colorado School of Mines. It wasn't a mixed school, but it was a very prominent one in its field. And uh, uh, we uh, sometimes we find causes to do things that are scary. And when I first got to Colorado School of Mines, I wanted to have a Christian influence, but I also wanted to get tenured so I'd have a job. And I wasn't sure what the thinking of the people in my department was. There were 11 faculty and none of them were Christians. And I thought, uh-oh, maybe if I step out of the boat and are more visible about with my faith, then I'll not, uh, it won't, you know, I'll get fired. And that was a very real possibility. Uh, so I've been there after a few months, and uh, one day, about five minutes, first five minutes of my class, I just took to share a little bit more about my faith and stuff, and I told them I wanted them to know me not just as a teacher or professor, but as a person, and uh, so I'll be sharing with you occasionally some interesting personal things beyond just engineering. So I shared a little bit about my faith journey and so forth. That evening, I got calls from the school newspaper uh, editor who said, oh, I heard from three different students independently that you said some interesting things in class. Uh, I don't know if they had said interesting or inappropriate or what. but So he said, would you like to write a story for the uh, newspaper, the school newspaper? And I said, well, how long? Well, it could be a full full page and we put your picture in too. And I'm thinking, oh gosh, do I really want to do that? I mean, this is a good way to get fired. I'm, I'm first job, I have a wife, I have two small children, or two and three, or one and two. And it seemed like a risky thing to do. And uh, but I thought this is why I went into teaching. And this is obviously God opening the door but it's kind of a scary one to step through. And if then I like to think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego where they're getting thrown into the fiery furnace and they said, God can save us from the fiery furnace, but if we burn, we burn. And I thought, I think this is my, if we burn, we burn moment. <laughs> Pretty scary. So we went ahead and did it. I wrote the, he let me write the whole article up. He didn't interview me. He let me write it. That was nice. And uh, they, I put it in there and with a newspaper uh, picture. And uh, I was hoping and praying, no, faculty would be reading the student newspaper that week, <laughs> or the school newspaper, I should say. But uh, see if what happens. And it, uh, it uh, I don't know what happened, but not one person from my department ever said anything. And for that, I was glad. But I think a lot of the students ran it. When I, I, I thought it was just for one day. And I was hoping that the professors in my department wouldn't see it in just one day because they put oh, places where they put the school newspapers out. Um, and then I discovered, oh, no, they just do the paper once a week. So that was sitting out there for a whole week with a very ample opportunity for my students to watch it or find it, see, good. I didn't want my colleagues 
I didn't go and take the ones around my department and throw them away. I just thought I'm not going to do anything and see what happens. And nothing bad happened. So it was a good lesson. And it doesn't mean I never got into trouble. There were some other occasions that did have happen later. But when you're doing what Christ wants you to do, it's probably going to have some complications. It's good. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll when, we, when we get together again, we'll talk more about all that you have seen happen, the fruit of, of the work that you've done on campuses, because that's that's a great story. And uh, there's there's just a lot. Uh, when, when you start unwrapping the story of Walter Bradley, there's a lot to it. So, Walter, thank you for this time. We really appreciate it. And we do look forward to you joining us again. Well, thank you for the privilege of sharing some of these uh, great things that God has done. And I hope it will be an encouragement to the people that are listening that maybe are facing similar kinds of uh, challenges. Yes, sir. Well, thank you, Walter. And to our audience, I want to say thank you for being with us today. We'll hope you visit our website, hillcountryinstitute.org, to listen uh, to podcasts of our previous programs and also uh, audio and video from our conferences on faith and science topics. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit hillcountryinstitute.org or call 512-680-7993. And for donations of $100 or more, we'll send you a copy of the biography of Walter Bradley for a greater purpose, the life and legacy of Walter Bradley. And we encourage you to share the heart, love, and mind of Jesus Christ wherever you go. And thank you again for being with us for Hill Country Institute Life.